Some have called the church a parenthesis in God's overall plan and purpose. In which overall plan and purpose, God is dealing with Abraham's physical offspring, the nation of Israel. Some have said that the church is a parenthesis in that overall plan. There's a whole system of theological thought in which that type of language is used. That the church is a parenthesis in God's overall plan, in which overall plan God is dealing primarily with Abraham's physical offspring, the nation of Israel. Is this true? As we saw last week in the book of Galatians, no. And as we'll see again tonight, no. We're looking primarily at Genesis 15 tonight, but let's look at the promises made in Genesis 12 first by way of review and thoroughness as we consider God's covenantal dealings with Abram. The promises made in chapter 12 are as follows. Verse 2, I will make you a great nation. Verse 2 again, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And verse 3, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There's no language of covenant here in Genesis chapter 12, but people have long observed that the things that are later on formalized and and ratified in official formal covenants are also mentioned here in Genesis chapter 12. Later on in 15 and 17 and 22, these things that are promised in chapter 12 are repeated to Abram and put into official formal covenant form. And so it's right that we consider Genesis 12 as we consider God's covenantal dealings with Abram. So those are the four promises made in Genesis chapter 12. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. These are things that God promised to Abram as God called Abram to go from his country and from his kindred to the land that he would show him. So these are things that Abram was expecting of God. Now back to Genesis 15. After Abram rescues Lot from the kings from the east and has his encounter with Melchizedek, after these things, Genesis 15:1, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Abram had in mind all of these promises made way back in Genesis chapter 12 to him. To us, it's just a couple chapters, but in the unfolding narrative, it's several years. And so Abram has these things in his mind as yet unfulfilled, and he's growing older. And he responds in Genesis 15 to, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. From an earthly perspective, God wasn't yet making good on His promise. Because Abram was still a wanderer. 
He was, as we saw in our exposition of Genesis chapter 14, something of a king, a king of a nomadic city-state. But his reward was not very great beyond sort of normal, wealthy, ancient Near Eastern contemporaries. He hadn't been made into a great nation. In fact, he hadn't even had a child yet, let alone a son who could carry on his name. So how was God going to bless him and make his name great? How was God going to bless all the families of the earth in him? These were the things that had been promised in Genesis chapter 12, but they hadn't yet been fulfilled. So when God comes to Abram again in Genesis 15:1 and says, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Abram responds, O Lord, what will you give me? Something like, what will my reward be? I don't see it. You keep telling me that there will be a reward and that you will bless me, but what will it be? For here I am growing old. I don't even have a son. I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. God then goes on to make further promises. He repeats some of what He's already said and He makes some further promises. In 15.1, as I've already stated, He says, I am your shield. In 15.1, He says, your reward shall be very great. He hasn't used those exact words before, but He said, I will bless you which is similar to your reward shall be very great. But then in 15.4, in response to Abram's claim that Eliezer will be his heir, God makes this very specific promise. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Then he, God doesn't back off the promise of descendants and making of Abram a great nation. God doubles down on that promise. And in verse 5 of Genesis 15, He brings Abram outside and says, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. So shall your offspring be. God doubles down on that promise. And then He gets very specific. In verses 13 and 14, God says, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And then he says in verse 16, They shall come back here in the fourth generation. So now he's making specific promises about Abram's offspring. Not only will Abram have offspring, but this is specifically what's going to happen to them. And then verse 18 to 20, he talks about giving them this land. Gives them specific borders of this land, this very land. Names the people groups that currently occupy it and says it's going to be their land. So God is doubling down. He's not backing off the promises that he made in Genesis chapter 12. He's actually reinforcing them and in fact actually 
becoming more specific about these promises. And he says of Abram himself in verse 15, You shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. So God, in this chapter, repeats His promises, doubles down on them, gets even more specific about them. And God takes a self-maledictory oath guaranteeing that these promises will be fulfilled. That they will be sure and certain. You might wonder what's going on with cutting all these animals in half. Well, this is an ancient way of making a covenant with another person. Kings might do this. Two kings would get together. They would cut some animals in half. And what they would do is each of them would take a turn walking through the middle of the pieces. And what it represented was if I break my covenant... May the fate of these animals be my fate. In other words, if I break this covenant, you are well within your rights to cut me in half. So that's what's going on here. We notice in this section, though, that Abram never passes between the animals, does he? God, in verse 17, passes through the pieces, symbolized by a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. In other words, God is saying... I will do this. And if I don't do this, you can cut me in half, so to speak. This is God's self-maledictory oath to Abram. That all the promises that I've made to you will certainly and surely be fulfilled. So how were the promises fulfilled? At a basic level, and typologically, or typologically, These promises were fulfilled to Abraham's natural seed by way of the Sinai covenant. Clearly, at least a section of this is talking about the national, uh, the nation of Israel, the natural seed of Abraham. Clearly, God has them in mind when he speaks in verses 13 and 14 and 15 and 16 about. Abraham's offspring being sojourners in a land that is not theirs, being servants there, being afflicted for 400 years, and coming back out to possess this land. Clearly, God has in mind Abraham's natural offspring, the nation of Israel, in that section. And we see the fulfillment at that level happening through the Sinai covenant. As God brings Abraham's great-great-great-great-grandchildren out of the land of Egypt and organizes them into a nation at Sinai. Gives them civil laws to govern them. Gives them a ceremonial system of worship. Defines the parameters of their kingdom and their nation. Who it can be a citizen. What are the qualifications of citizenship? who must be outside of the citizenship, so on and so forth. He defines them as a nation, and then he brings them in to the promised land, and then he eventually even sets kings over them. And so clearly we see that there's a level of fulfillment of these promises that God makes to Abraham in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 going on with the natural offspring of Abram. We see in Joshua chapter 23, 
and verse 14 that Joshua understands what has happened in this very way. He says, Now I am about to go the way of all the earth. In other words, I'm going to die. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. So the things that God has promised to Abraham's natural seed were in due time fulfilled to Abraham's natural seed. He brought them out of Egypt, gave them the land that he promised, and Joshua testifies not one word has failed. But at an ultimate level, and anti-typically, the promises that God makes to Abraham are fulfilled through the new covenant to the children of promise. We saw this last week as we exposited Galatians chapter 4, that God has something bigger in mind than the nation of Israel when He makes promises to Abram. We saw last week in Galatians chapter 4 that those with whom God makes the covenant at Sinai are actually considered to be like Ishmael. They're compared by Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, not to Isaac, the child of promise, but to Ishmael. And rather, it is those who are in the new covenant who are compared by Paul to Isaac. So even as God makes promises to Abram and fulfills them at one level to Abram's natural offspring, God has something bigger in mind. Namely, The kingdom which is comprised of people from every tribe and language and people and nation. Which will inherit not only the promised land, but the whole world. This is what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 4. He's been speaking of Genesis 15. In Genesis chapter 4 and verse 3, he says, What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He's quoting from Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So Paul is talking about Genesis chapter 15. And he's going on and developing a certain argument. But then he says in Romans 4.13, For the promise to Abraham, Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And so, Paul interprets God's promises made to Abram in Genesis chapter 15 as having a more ultimate reference than simply bringing the Israelites into the promised land. He... is arguing that those who share the faith of Abram are to be heirs not only of the promised land, but heirs of the world. And that this is a more ultimate fulfillment of the promises that God was making to Abram back in those days. And so what we see is that there is 
typology happening. And typology is instances that are true and historical in themselves, but which point to something greater that happens later in redemptive history. And typology is part of the way that God has progressively revealed His ultimate purposes. And so, for example, God gives lambs, which are, have their own historical function in the unfolding narrative, but these lambs testify to something greater. And there's a temple, and it has its own historical function, but it testifies to something greater. So what's going on here is that God is creating a kingdom. God is creating a nation, which is typological. It has its own historical function, but it also signifies something greater. This kingdom that God creates at Sinai is a level of fulfillment of the Abrahamic promises, but it's a type, a shadow of something even better that will come later. So it has its own historical function, but it signifies something greater. Abram's natural children, those with whom God enters into covenant at Sinai, are not the children of promise. Abram's spiritual children, those who, like Abram, have faith in God's promises, are counted as Abram's offspring. Now, it is important to note here that there were and are, even today, many of Abram's natural seed ethnic Jews who were and are also children of promise. Throughout the Old Testament, there were those who were part of the Sinai covenant who were also, at the same time, children of promise. They were then, therefore, Abram's natural seed and Abram's spiritual seed. You could be both. For example, there was Moses himself, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, any Old Covenant believer was really and truly part of the Mosaic Covenant, a member of the Mosaic Covenant, an heir to its privileges and blessings and so on and so forth, and also an heir to how to share in the New Covenant. This is important to clarify lest there be any misunderstanding When we speak of children of promise being those who have a share in the new covenant, we're not speaking exclusively of those who have lived after the formal establishment of the new covenant. All who trusted in God's progressive revelation of a Messiah and a covenant that the Messiah would mediate and a kingdom that the Messiah would rule over. All who trusted in these promises, trusted in this Messiah, have a share in the covenant that the Messiah would eventually come and ratify, establish. The new covenant wasn't formally established until Christ's death and resurrection, but the new covenant was promised in the Old Testament, and it has a retroactive property to it in that it is the basis of the salvation of all who were saved even before the cross, as well as being the basis of all who were saved after the cross. In other words, 
everyone who's ever been saved from their sin has been saved by Christ Jesus and the covenant that He mediates. Nobody who's ever been saved has been saved by the Abrahamic covenant or by the Mosaic covenant. They may have been saved while they were under the Abrahamic covenant or saved while they were under the Mosaic covenant, but they weren't saved by those covenants. They were saved by the Messiah and the covenant that the Messiah mediates, namely the new covenant. And so the new covenant exists in promissory form before the cross, and everybody who takes hold of those promises has a share in the Messiah and in the covenant that He mediates. And so they become children of promise. And then Christ comes, and in His life, and in His death, and in His resurrection, establishes, formalizes the new covenant. And everybody who believes in Him at that time and afterwards also have a share in that covenant. And so in Christ Jesus and in the new covenant that He mediates, people from every tribe and language and people and nation are gathered together into a kingdom over which Christ rules. And they will live, as Romans 4.13 tells us, in the world, the renewed world. They will possess the world. This is what Romans 4 and verse 13 tells us. And so, the old covenant nation of Israel was really a kingdom, was really a level of fulfillment of the Abrahamic promises, but it was a typological fulfillment which pointed to something great. It had its own historical significance, but pointed to something greater that would come later in redemptive history as all other types like lambs and temples and priests also did. So if the promises then are fulfilled ultimately to a spiritual seed of Abraham through the new covenant or theologians also sometimes call the new covenant the covenant of grace to help make it a little bit easier for people to understand the before and after Christ aspect. Because sometimes when we think of New Covenant, it's hard for us to imagine the salvation of Old Testament believers under the New Covenant. So the covenant of grace is a term that's sometimes used to help convey that omnitemporal existence of that covenant. From the fall of Adam all the way to the return of Christ, the covenant of grace spans redemptive history. If the promises are fulfilled ultimately, ultimately, to a spiritual seed of Abraham through the new covenant or the covenant of grace, then this raises the question, why Israel and the Sinai covenant? Why bother? Why bother with the type? Why not skip all the way to the anti-type? Well, you could ask the same question about any type, actually. But let's think specifically about Israel and the Sinai covenant. First, and I think we could say primarily for instruction. Romans chapter 15 and verse 4 reads like this. Now, 
whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Whatever was written. Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Joshua 24, the whole books of 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, whatever was written in former days. The Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. God saw fit to unfold these events, deal with these people in these ways for our instruction. So that through the endurance, through endurance and through the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. So that the children of promise would be edified, encouraged, instructed by the scriptures, by observing God's dealings with his old covenant people and the way that he speaks to them, the way that he deals with them. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6. Speaking of the exodus from Egypt and the pilgrimage through the wilderness, Paul writes to the Corinthian church in verse 6 of chapter 10, Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Why did those things take place? Scripture says as examples for us. God unfolded history in such a way that we would have examples that we might not desire evil as they did. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. God saw fit to have these things happen, and that these things would be written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. The fulfillment of all things. We are living truly in the last days. As was Paul in the first century. And as have all the believers been since then. There is no stage after this. This is the end of the ages. God has been progressively revealing His plan and His purpose. And Christ has come to bring all of His plans and all of His purposes into fulfillment. So this is the end of the age. This is, if you want to use this language, the last dispensation before the eternal state. The end of the ages has come upon us. All things have been brought to their fulfillment in and through Christ Jesus or are being brought to their fulfillment in and through Christ Jesus in this age. God saw fit to deal with Israel So that we, God's new covenant people, or the people included in the covenant of grace, would have instruction. We think of God and His character more vividly than we otherwise could have when we read the Old Testament and think in Old Testament categories and vocabulary. Grace, redemption, Power, patience, anger, all these things that we see predicated of God in the Old Testament bring forth vividly God's character to us. 
in a way that if we didn't have the Old Testament, we'd, we'd be at a disadvantage. All the personification that happens in the Old Testament, God smelling things in His nostril, God bringing people out of Egypt with His mighty right arm, God smiting armies, God giving somebody leprosy as a judgment. All of these things help us more vividly understand who God is. Instruction. Instruction. And all these things, again, typological. Salvation from enemies, whether it be the Syrians, whether it be the Philistines, typological. They have their own historical significance, but they point to something greater. A greater deliverance at the hands of a greater king. The judgment of God sending leprosy or other wasting diseases on somebody. Again, typological. They have their own historical significance, but they speak to a greater judgment of being infected with sin and ultimately coming to an eternal death because of instruction. We think of Christ and His work more vividly than we otherwise could have when we think in Old Covenant categories and with Old Covenant vocabulary. Holiness, sin, atonement, temple, priest, lamb. We understand these things that were taught of Christ more vividly when we think about the Old Testament. And the, the throats of animals being slit and the heads of birds being twisted off and their bodies being burned on the altar and these sorts of things. We, we understand going somewhere to meet with God and having the cloud of God's special presence coming down to meet with His people. The holiness of God as Sinai thunders and rumbles and great smoke descends upon it. We understand things better because of how God dealt with that typological nation of Israel in the Old Covenant. We think of ourselves and our nature and our struggles more vividly than we otherwise could have when we think in Old Covenant categories and with Old Covenant vocabulary. A crooked and perverse generation. Grumblers. Hard-hearted. Doubting God and wondering if He can provide water for them in the wilderness. Whether or not He can provide food for them in their journey to the promised land. We see something of our own heart and our own struggles pictured in God's dealings with this typological nation. Just like them, don't we sometimes wonder if God can feed and water us and get us all the way home to the promised land? Do we sometimes wonder if God has brought us out of Egypt just to die in the wilderness? Maybe He won't get us all the way home. Do we wonder if the things which stand against our soul are too mighty and too gigantic for us to overcome? And maybe we won't be able to take hold of the promised land. But we see God feeding and watering that typological nation, the nation of Israel. We see God giving them water from the rock and manna from above. We see Him defeating the mighty giants in the land and bringing them in to possess what He had promised to them. 
And so we understand God's salvation of us more clearly as we look at these things. So instruction. Why, why Israel then and why Sinai? Instruction. Galatians 3.19 says that the law came because of transgressions. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. I understand this to mean some restraining of transgression, some restraining of sin. Obviously not an inward restraining, but to some degree outward. That there was at least a, a, a law given, a modicum of morality and righteousness preserved, at least an understanding and awareness of what God expected. There were certainly dark periods in Israel's history. At times it was said of the nation of Israel that they were worse than all of the other nations around them. And yet I think Galatians is teaching us that to some extent, God gave the Sinai covenant, at least in part, to restrain sin in the nation of Israel until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, namely Christ. And then thirdly, so firstly for instruction, secondly to restrain corruption, thirdly, in order to fulfill and in order to demonstrate the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that in his offspring, in the singular, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Galatians applies that to Christ Galatians 3.16 Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. God promised that in your offspring, singular, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So the Messiah who would come and bless all the nations of the earth had to be descended from Abraham. The Sinai covenant helped preserve Abraham's line. It demarcated Abraham's line from those who were not in Abraham's line. It distinguished Jews from Gentiles so that it could be fulfilled that the Messiah would come from Abraham's line and so that it could be seen by us that the promise was fulfilled, that a descendant came according to Abraham's line. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. This this is an important point. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. This is how the New Testament begins. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Without the Sinai covenant, God would certainly know who Abraham's descendants were. It would be no trouble to God to send a Messiah who is descended from Abraham. But we would never know if Abraham's descendants started mixing all over the place. We would have no idea whether or not this one who claimed to be the Messiah was descended from Abraham or not. So God God vindicates Himself and shows His faithfulness in sending the promised one as the seed of Abraham to the world. So there are a number of reasons given to us in the Scripture for why God bothered to deal with 
Abraham's natural seed and organize them into a kingdom, even though that seed and that kingdom wasn't going to be the ultimate fulfillment of the promises that he made. All those reasons I just gave you are good reasons for dealing God's dealings with Abraham's natural seed and organizing them into a kingdom, namely the nation of Israel, even though he wasn't primarily thinking of them as being the fulfillment of the promises that he made. He thought of them as being typological, typological, having their own significance, but testifying of something even greater that's similar to them. He thought of them as being instructive. He used the mechanisms of the Old Covenant to restrain sin to some extent within the boundaries of that nation and that kingdom. And he used that kingdom to demarcate Abraham's offspring from the offspring of others and other people groups all over the place so that it would be seen that God was faithful in sending the Messiah through Abraham's line as he promised. So the promises made in Genesis 12 and 15 are certain. God confirms them with a self-maledictory oath. The only one that walks through the animals cut in half is God. God, as it were, saying, so shall it be done to me if I don't fulfill these promises that I made to you. The fulfillment is sure and certain. And these promises are fulfilled in two ways to two types of Abraham's offspring. The Sinai covenant made with the natural seed of Abraham is a subsidiary fulfillment of the promises made to him. A lesser fulfillment, subservient to God's ultimate promises, which would be, or God's promises which would be ultimately fulfilled in Abraham's spiritual seed. Those who are called the children of promise, who Galatians 4 tells us, have a share in the inheritance that Christ mediates, in the covenant that Christ mediates. This should affect then the way that we think about the new covenant and the church. Bringing people together from every nation around the globe, uniting them together in Christ Jesus by faith, and counting them as the children of promise, as the offspring of Abraham, is God's primary plan and purpose. The church of believe, comprised of believers both in the Old Testament and in the New is then, in the most ultimate sense, and in the truest sense, Israel. The church comprised of believers both in the Old Testament and in the New is central to God's plan and purpose. Not a parenthesis within it. Not peripheral, but central. Not a parenthesis. This should help us to esteem the church more rightly. That we would understand her significance. That we would understand the love that God has for her. That God has been working toward this 
in history. That we would be gathered here worshiping Him in and through Christ Jesus, united to one another in the new covenant. The church is central, not peripheral to God's plan and purpose. The church is not a parenthesis in God's plan. Of course, we should think rightly of the church, but we should also glorify God for His inscrutable wisdom and benevolence in instituting such a thing as the church. What is more beautiful than a multinational group of people bound together in love by Christ our Savior, forgiven for our sins, reconciled to Him, and reconciled to one another. Oh, the church is not only an important thing, but a beautiful thing. We ought to praise and bless God for giving her to us in His wisdom. And we ought to also praise Christ Jesus, who is her cornerstone, who is to each one of us and to all of us collectively our Savior.